of the new year, I'd like for us to consider what I believe is the greatest challenge and the grandest opportunity for human beings. I posed this question in social media land this week and a number of excellent responses. Understanding salvation, meeting the needs of the world like Christ did, dealing with climate change, revealing the true character of God, dealing with perceptions, water and food for those in need, the character of Christ, doing what Jesus wants us to do, laying down our plans before God, responding to the gospel, finding meaning and purpose, enjoying the unconditional love of God, and on the excellent responses went. And all of these, I believe, are grounded in a reality which I believe is the great challenge and the grand opportunity that I'd like to talk about this morning. I think we find it in the great epic in Exodus. The children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of Israel. Some 400 years foreigners in Egypt and now slaves. A horrible bondage. We read words like, Horrific, troubling, brutal, excruciating as we consider the text. It was literally killing them. In fact, Pharaoh had ordered that young Hebrew boys should be killed on the spot. Slavery. We read in Exodus 2, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and he was concerned about them. And God breaks in, I believe, in a way unparalleled anywhere in the law of the prophets. Appearing to Moses at a burning bush. Inflicting ten plagues on the government of Egypt. Loosening their grip on his people. And then parting the waters of the Red Sea. Manna from heaven. Water from a rock. Moses hears the very voice of God up on that mountain. Powerful. Explosive. In this great epic, I think we find the great challenge, and the grand opportunity. It comes to us in a single short phrase, uttered from the lips of Pharaoh. In chapter 5 and verse 2, he says, I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. This is an era where every group of people, each tribe, nation, country, had their own divinity, their own god or gods, and Egypt is no different. In fact, Pharaoh claims divinity. The river which flows through the country is in fact divine. Egypt has their own system of gods. And he looks at Moses, he looks at the Hebrews and says, I don't know your Lord, your God, but I will not let you go. He says to them, 
I'm pretty sure your God doesn't even exist. The great challenge for the Hebrews, I believe. Theism. Do we even believe in our God anymore? Or perhaps deism. Yeah, I think God is out there somewhere, but I'm pretty sure he is not active in this earth. Or perhaps what we know, theodicy. Wrestling with the question of evil, of pain and suffering, and where God is in all of it. These are the questions I think the Hebrews are wrestling with. Is there a God? Is he active? Is he loving in any way? The great challenge. And of course the great and grand opportunity to believe in a God who is active and loving. This is what Pharaoh feared. And so a revolution was born. I believe this same great challenge, fast forward the year 2015, sits with us. We live in an age of a new atheism, pervading our culture, including young adults, college students, a rising disbelief in the existence of God. We live in an era where I often hear, uh, well, I think there's some kind of God out there, but I'm pretty sure he's not involved in human affairs, a new deism that's catching fire. And of course, in this and every age, theodicy, struggling with evil, pain, and suffering. Where is God in all of that? This, I think, is the great challenge of our day. And the consequences are significant. Tolstoy wrote, my question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions, lying in the soul of every man, a question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was. What will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? The question of meaning and purpose. You see, yes, it is true that Jesus becomes absurd if there's no God. Jesus is irrelevant, one not to be listened to if there is no God. For his chief claim was, there is God, my Father in heaven. If we are to adopt deism, that there's a God out there, but he's not at all involved in human affairs. Again, Jesus is out of here, for it is Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel, that is his principal message. And also it is Jesus who en endures suffering. A God who is wounded, who experiences the impact of evil. And so if we say, well, maybe there's a God out there, but he certainly is not good, again, the message and the person of Jesus becomes wholly irrelevant. And if Jesus is out to lunch, what are we doing here? This church has no purpose or function. And if Jesus is a nutcase, everything on this campus 
is ridiculous. For every building rests on the foundation of Jesus. Every faculty member a brick on top of the foundational stone that is Jesus. This institution that we are a part of is absurd without Jesus. But even more than that, friends, life itself. If we are just drawing a few breaths and then we are going to die, annihilated forever, along with the universe, which is currently headed slowly towards its own death, scientists tell us, what's the point? The question is huge. The challenge to believe in a God, a God who is active and a God who is loving. And so I wonder, what if we made the year 2015 the year of living as if we were actually theists? I mean, what if we actually acted as if we believed in God? For those who are Christians who already make this claim, what if we leaned into it wholeheartedly? And for those with questions, and I suppose that's all of us, but for those who are deeply not sure, even claiming atheism. How about this? An experiment. A year of living as if. Pretending, leaning into the possibility that God exists. What would that be like? I think there's a couple of categories. First, it would challenge the left brain, the logical or rational mind. You may be aware that there are some very good thinkers for a very long time who have articulated excellent evidences for the existence of God. There are things like, where does stuff come from at all? Why is it so intricate? Why even in our human DNA is it clear that an intelligent designer of some kind must have put it together? What do we make of our sense of beauty, the presence of morality? The arguments go on and on, and they are quite compelling. What if we leaned into all of these this year to consider the rational arguments for God? We don't have time to move into all of these this morning, but what about this one? C.S. Lewis paints with great articulation the reality that there is a relationship between our desires and reality. He says that for every desire that we have, isn't it interesting that there is a corresponding reality? For example, my children. Daddy, I'm hungry. Well, there's food. Daddy, I'm, I'm thirsty. Well, there's water. There's something to drink. Daddy, I, I feel the need uh, to sleep. I'm tired. Well, there is such a thing as sleep. Dad, I'd love to play with my friends. Well, in this longing, there actually are other human beings. One day my daughter will say, uh, Dad, now about boys. And I will say, they don't exist, actually, in that one category. They, we don't need to worry about that at all, in fact. Lewis points out that isn't it interesting that for every longing we have as human beings, there is a corresponding reality. So what about our hunger 
for the divine. He writes in Mere Christianity, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for these desires exists. A baby feels hunger where there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim while there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire while there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. There is a near universal hunger for God. Throughout the history of the world, a variety of cultures, even those who take the atheist position, say often, I wish it weren't the case. There is a longing for something more. Well, Lewis says, doesn't it make sense that for every other desire, there's a corresponding reality? What about this one? The Anglican historian N.T. Wright puts it this way, spirituality, our interest in something beyond. Spirituality is a feature of human life which functions as an echo of a voice, as a signpost pointing away from the bleak landscape of modern secularism and toward the possibility that we humans are made for more than this. The very instinct we have for something beyond is suggestive of something, the possibility of God. Now, there's a whole host of arguments and many books. And this week, the pastoral staff, we're going to put some of these on the website and other places. But I'm wondering, what if each of us took the year 2015 and said, I'm going to lean hard into the possibility of God's existence. I'm going to use my rational mind. Um, there's some books out there that you don't have to have gained four PhDs to understand. I love Timothy Keller's book, The Reason for God. And I just want to challenge you to pick up this book. Read it this year. Begin a journey exploring rational evidences for the existence of the divine. Of a God who is, a God who is active, and a God who is loving in our world. What would it be like if we just said, we're going to take this seriously? You see, my brothers and sisters, pretty much everything we do on our Sabbath school classes and pretty much everything that happens in terms of what the church publishes, what we write, what we speak on, it's very good. But all of it presupposes that we already believe in God, that the Bible is legitimate, that the story of Jesus makes sense. All of it functions up here, but there's much deeper fundamental questions of God's existence and the integrity of the scriptures that are the questions that our society is asking. And I think it's our responsibility, not a few pastors or a few Bible teachers, but all of us who claim Christ, to be able to help people along in thinking through the deeper questions. But it's not just that side of the brain. We have another half. The emotional side, the relational, the affective. This too is important. What if we took the new year and committed ourselves to a real, felt, heart connection to God? Many of you are probably familiar with the announcement just days ago of the former Adventist pastor, Ryan Bell, that he is a committed atheist. 
I have to tell you, I have serious disagreement with Ryan, but also I have been concerned about the reaction of certain Christians against him that have not acted in Jesus-like ways. I think it's important for us to acknowledge that lots of us have questions in the world. Journeys twist and turn, and we must treat one another with respect and kindness. But I do have disagreement with my friend Ryan's decision-making. A little over a year ago, he wanted to go on this particular experiment, trying out atheism. Listen to what he said. So I'm making it official, embarking on a new journey. I will try on atheism for a year. For the next 12 months, I will live as if there is no God. I will not pray, read the Bible for inspiration, refer to God as the cause of things, or hope that God might intervene and change my own or someone else's circumstances. He said, basically, I want to go a whole year and cut off everything that would cause me to have any personal relationship with God. He said, I'm going to take away all the practices uh, that people did in the Bible, that Christians have done for 2,000 years, that Adventists have practiced for nearly 200 years, things like Bible study and prayer and fasting and silence and solitude and meditation on the scriptures and going on spiritual retreats, everything that we understand that forms ourselves spiritually and forms our relational connection to God, these spiritual disciplines or pathways, I'm going to sweep all of them away and see what it's like. Now I want you to imagine for a second that I said to Nicole uh, today, let's try an experiment. Why don't we, for this year, pretend like we're not married? We will not practice any of the activities that, of course, we understand and are, are highly recommended for good, healthy marriages. And so we will not talk with one another, listen to one another. There will be no communication. There will be zero physical contact. And, contact. and while we are in different places, any time a good thought about you comes into my head, which is often, I will immediately banish it from my mind. I will eliminate all of the disciplines, all the activities, all of the experiences that foster a rich marital relationship. Now I wonder what would happen at the end of a year. It would kill the relationship. I think Ellen White gets it right. Steps to Christ, page 93. She says, through nature and revelation... Through his providence and by the influence of his spirit, God speaks to us. And here she's talking about the logical, rational self. The first part of what we've been talking about today. But, she writes, but, these are not enough. We need also to pour out our hearts to him. In order to have spiritual life and energy, we must have actual intercourse with our Heavenly Father. Our minds may be drawn out toward Him. We may meditate upon His works, His mercies, His blessings. But this is not, in the fullest sense, communing with Him. In order to commune with God, we must have something to say to Him concerning our actual life. Prayer is the opening of the heart to God as to a friend. Not that it is necessary in order to make known to God what we are, but in order to enable us to receive Him. Prayer does not bring God down to us, but brings us up to Him. 
She says, yes, there's a lot of logical, rational reasons to believe in God. But that's not all we need. We have to engage in the emotive, the relational, the heart connectivity to God as well. Now, church, I want to speak to you a minute as your pastor. I have great worry. I'm concerned for our college students, particularly for young adults. I worry even for my own children who were living at a time where not believing in God or considering him to be distant but uninvolved and certainly not the loving God portrayed by Jesus is the norm. It's everywhere. I am greatly worried about this threat to our kids and to the church. Over the last several years in Christianity, and that includes Adventist Christianity, there has been considerable concern among some that the practice of spiritual disciplines, praying and reading the Bible, fasting and silence and solitude and going on spiritual retreats, then engaging in all of these relational activities with God that are practiced in Scripture over the last 2,000 years of Christianity, nearly 200 years of Adventism, that these things, in fact, are risky and that they actually would lead a person to become a humanist, to no longer believe in God. And I suppose this concern is something uh, to pay attention to because there could be a case or two where someone might go down that path. But hear me, congregation. The great worry for our children is not that we are praying too much, but we are praying too little. It's not that we are studying the scriptures too much, but that we are studying them too little. It's not that we are fasting and meditating on the scriptures and going on spiritual retreats and clearing the clutter of life that we might open up our hearts and minds to God too little. No, we've got to do much, much more of these things. The threat to our kids, the, the, the threat to our church is the absence of real connectivity to God. You clear out all of those spiritual experiences for a year, and you might just find that you no longer have a relationship to God, and maybe you don't even believe in Him. I love the lyrics to hymn 251 in our hymnal. Just, just, just listen to a bit of them. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives where? In my heart. In my experience, in the personal relationship I have with him that has grown in actually doing life with him through experiences that we know connect our mortal selves to his immortality. And so along with Keller's book, I wonder if you'd join me in reading The Desire of Ages Afresh. I love the title, Desire. It's so full of emotion. 
and reading through that great commentary on the life of Jesus with this intent to rekindle a passionate romance with Jesus once again. The Exodus story points us to the great challenge. In this world, to believe in God and to believe that He's active and that He's loving. But it also reveals to us the grand opportunity to believe in God, to know that He's active, and to feel His love. May this be 2015 for you. A year full of God. Amen.
I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and how high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen.